Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I've got a very pleasant duty tonight to introduce to you Mr. Wills. Most of you will know him or know of him. Uh, it's not in any other connection, in connection with gliding, because he won an international gold uh, very many years ago. I believe was the first Englishman to get an international gold for gliding. I think it was number three. However, he started to fly quite early, 1928, and uh, he went into the ATA on the outbreak of war, and ultimately became second in command and director of operations. So that also he'd been an author of one or two books and many articles. But I think again, we know you best, sir, from your gliding and your connection with Slingsby. Well, I won't say any more. I asked Mr. Will what I should say before him. Before we started, he said, make it as brief as possible. So with that, I'll ask Mr. Wills to give us his lecture on the air transport auxiliary. Mr. Wills. This is what I was going to start by saying. Um, if you're all asleep by the time I finish talking, I'll utter a loud scream to wake you up to see the film, Ferry Pilot, which I've uh, pretty well forgotten myself. Um, well, now, we're looking a very long way back in, in, in uh, time, alas, now. And I've tried to recall the kind of atmosphere we lived in in those days. But I may, uh, I may fail to do so, in which case I apologize in advance. Well, ATA came into existence uh, shortly after the outbreak of war in September 1939 and the flag was finally hauled down on November the 30th 1945. In those six years it grew from an idea in the mind of Gerard Delanger into an organization employing at its peak in 44 550 male pilots, 108 women pilots, 109 flight engineers, and a ground staff of around 2,800 people, a total of 3,500 men and women. <coughs> Experience since then leads me to the conclusion that the coefficient of relative efficiency uh, between a specialized civilian setup as opposed to a necessarily non-specialized service one is somewhere between three and five and so ATA uh, probably released for more direct operational war services something between nine and a half and, and fifteen thousand people. During our first year, ATA's 50-odd pilots were ferrying aircraft as part of an RAF ferry pool. So we haven't got any figures for that time. But from its independence in 45 to the final date of disbandment, 
We ferried around 309,000 aircraft. We flew a total ferry hours of about 415,000. We flew taxi and transport aircraft hours of around 200,000. On top of that, we had school training hours of around 140,000. And so we uh, roughly carried out during the period of our existence three quarters of a million hours of flying. Uh, we did this with an organization. We started ourselves, we developed ourselves, and we ran ourselves uh, pretty well independent of outside uh, control. The cost in casualties was 154 men and women, so that since our total peaked, as I've just said, at 650 flying crew, it wasn't entirely a gilt-edged way of spending our war. We ferried 147 different types of aircraft, from light aircraft to flying boats, apart from the multitudinous different marks of aircraft of types uh, within each um, breed. Well, the first thing to realize about ATA is that we weren't formed to do this job at all. Um, the initial idea was to utilize the services of a number of uh, people who were uh, thought to be too decayed to join the uh, Air Force um, to form a communications service at home or behind the lines. And this was the task for which we initially joined up. And we went for a brief check on a tiger moth at Bristol to be passed out. But uh, shortly after that, and presumably because there was some uh, gap in the pre-war planning of the uh, authorities, an urgent need became manifest to strengthen the RAF ferry service whose job, of course, was to collect new aircraft from the factories, deliver them to maintenance units where, the, where they were equipped, deliver them from maintenance units to the squadrons, collect them if they were flyable from the squadrons to return them for repair, and uh, all that multitudinous kind of duty, which was not obviously easily carried out by the operational pilots themselves. Almost at once, then, uh, Mr. Delanger, as he then was, was asked to detach 28 pilots on a temporary basement, uh, basis for attachment to an RAF ferry pool at Hucknall, uh, Nottingham. And on the 20th of September in 1939, the first of these were posted to CFS Uphaven for flight test and training. Of course, there were number of doubts expressed as to whether men of our degree of experience could uh, possibly cope with such work, because all the mystique which has once more today been built uh, about this business of flying was just as powerful in 1939 as it is 
1965, but the next few weeks rapidly settled that uh, issue. Uh, my own record, perhaps, is typical. When I joined ATA, I'd had 300 hours of gliding experience and 525 hours on light aircraft. My powered flying had virtually ceased three years before, in 1936. In the three subsequent years, I just kept my license alive by doing the necessary five hours a year and concentrated my enthusiasm on the flying of gliders. With this background, my conversion course at Upaven consisted of an hour and a half duel on a Harvard, followed by a 50-minute solo, an hour 20 minutes on a battle, after which I was passed as fit to fly all single-engine service types. This is what they thought. I didn't think it at the time, but roughly speaking, it turned out that they were right and I was wrong. We then got posted for the freezing, foggy winter of 39.40 to Hucknall, where we started off mainly ferrying battles. There weren't any technical manuals in those days, or indeed any kind of information, except word of mouth, made available to us. So the operation was an astonishingly amateur one. I remember my first Hawker Hart. I collected it from Harden, the ferry south, and the only information I could get on the ship at all was from the civilian ground engineer who started it. He told me where the knobs and taps were, and I gaily set off, being young at the time. About 20 minutes later, at 2,000 feet over the Welsh hills, the engine stopped without any warning. It was, of course, a rather larger device than I'd been accustomed to sitting in in my pre-war days. And it might have been perhaps an alarming situation for uh, someone who'd had nothing but power-flying experience, but to a glider pilot, it was just another landing. And I stuffed the thing down in a small field running uphill and went to ring up RAF Cosford. They sounded extremely surprised when I told them where I was and in one piece, and they sent off a crash team, and I was taken back to Cosford. The thing was, guard was mounted on the thing. When I got there, I was treated as the latest hero. In fact, the war was very young. I think I jolly nearly got a medal until they sent an engineer over to find out what the hell had happened. Because what had happened was that the ground engineer only knew about the... Um, reserve tank, which is what you started on, was permitted to tell me to switch to the main tank after take-off. Well, this was, uh, so I came down rapidly from being a hero to being a knit, and it was about Christmas Eve, and it was remarkably cold, and um, this wretched armed guard had to sit on this thing until the wind blew strong enough from the west to get it out of this extremely tiddly field. And Christmas came and went, and I sat at Crossford in blackest gloom, everybody looking crosser and crosser, until at last the wind did blow from the west, and then crowning horror, I wasn't uh, uh, thought to be grand enough to fly the thing out myself, so 
uh, an RAF pilot was sent to get it away. Well, that was that, and later on in April 1940, I was sent back to Arpaven for a twin conversion course. This consisted of two hours dual and one hour solo on a Blenheim, and then 45 minutes each dual on a Botha, which was a singularly bloody aircraft, and a Beaufort. And this then qualified me for all twin-engined types. Now then in August of the same year, uh, two dual flights totaling one hour forty minutes on a, on a Sterling converted me to a class five pilot so authorized to fly everything except flying boats. Well, I'm not maintaining that these conversions were adequate. <coughs> and of course, as we developed and formed our own training schools, very much more thorough and sophisticated methods were evolved. But by then we were taking in pilots of even less experience than mine, eventually down to Abinicio, so we can really make no direct comparison. But I think the lesson stands, and although the combined forces of professionalism, trade unionism and bureaucracy will try forever to bury it, it is one of the main contributions that ATA made to the um, to aviation history, and one which, as long as we can, we must battle to retain in the minds of men. Because since 1939, really immense strides have been made in aircraft design, in the fields of stability and handling, in the knowledge of the limitations of human brain and muscle. And few of the aircraft we flew during the war would now be assessed as fit to fly. A good airplane, by definition, must be easy to fly. And it follows, I think, that any good amateur pilot today could, in emergency, be trained to fly any modern or service civil or, or service or civil type of aeroplane. Now, I wanted to find this a little more closely than that. It'd be nonsense to pretend that a good private pilot of a Cessna or a Skylark 4 glider could, after a few hours, fly a V-bomber on an operational sortie or a Boeing 707 full of passengers on a stormy night from London to San Francisco. Though I think the latter task could possibly be within reach of a few of us, provided we had a competent supporting crew of flight engineer and radio officer. But our job was more limited than that, though in some ways it was even more specialized, because we had to be able to get into an aeroplane of a type we'd never seen before, and with the aid only of special technical literature, which we eventually produced ourselves, and without any radio or navigational aids other than a map. We had to start it up, taxi it out, take it off, fly to our destination, land, taxi it in, and stop its engines. Above all, not mishandling it in any way, likely to hazard the lives of the future pilots who would probably be flying it over enemy territory. 
fire work had to be carried out with minimum air crew because, of course, uh, to begin with, at any rate, we were extremely short-handed. And only on a few aircraft where all the controls couldn't be reached from the pilot's seat uh, did we carry a second pilot or a flight engineer. Now, as the scope of our operations extended, we eventually established 14 separate ferry pools. Headquarters and number one pool was at White Walton, and substations were spread from Hamble in the south to Lossiemouth in North Scotland. <coughs> when a spell of bad weather set in, more and more aircraft would come onto our books, and of course pressure would grow to get them moved. Fighter Command would start screening for deliveries. MAP would express grave concern at the risk of enemy action at a particular factory, destroying a large number of new aircraft piling up daily on the tarmac. In fact, I recall one instance of 60 Spitfires, all at Castle Bromwich, in the middle of a balloon barrage in a six-day fog, and so on. So it was vital to plan the work centrally so that the maximum number of aircraft could be moved with the minimum number of pilots. So we set up a central operations room to which all ferry requests were made uh, at uh, HQ-41 Group, Andover, with tie lines to each pool. This unit integrated the work. For instance, if a hurricane came on the books from Brooklands to, say, Lossiemouth, and uh, there was also a Wellington from Lossiemouth to come back to Kemble, the two jobs were married up and given to one ferry pool, White Walton. This, of course, meant that all we had to do with this chap was to ferry him from White Walton to Brooklands in the morning and collect him in the evening from Kemble, unless there might well be a spit at Kemble for ferrying to Kenley when we could tell the chap to bring himself back to White Walton in that for the night and ferry it on to Kemble to Kenley first thing in the morning. Uh, as time went on, it became practice to ferry aircraft on the longer flights in two or even three stages because in the winter uh, you could often get a northbound aircraft as far as, say, 12 ferry pool cut bride, leave it there, bring back something waiting there, and then a bride pilot could take it on as soon as the weather cleared up to Lossie and bring something in turn back to Kirkbride that evening. The, the important thing was not that I think we weren't being lazy, the more pilots you could get back to their pools every night, the more work you could get out of them the next day. Of course, if somebody got stuck up at Lossiemouth for night, most he could do next day was one job, whereas if he got back to us, we might give him two, three, four, or even more. So each morning, the central option at Andover would split up the enormous crossword puzzle They'd got into 14 smaller ones, and from 6 a.m. onwards, they'd phone their day's work to each of the ferry pools. Each pool ops room would then get its met forecast and set out to lock the work. I can still remember it. It was one of the most fascinating 
jobs I've ever done. On the wall, you had a blackboard with the names and qualifications of each pilot in the pool. But in the head of a good pool CEO or ops officer, who had further vital knowledge which couldn't be written down anywhere, you'd, uh, as you went through this thing, setting it out, you'd say to yourself, well, Smith's as keen as mustard, but he's apt to stick his neck out a bit in bad weather. It looks a bit thick round hardened today, so I'd better not give him that spit priority to Abbott's Inch. Uh, you'd say, I see there are four aircraft coupling up here. The Hurricane from Langley to Campbell. There's a Wellington from Campbell to Landau. There's a Sterling from Landau to Harden. And um, there's a Tiger Mass from Harden back to Fair Oaks, which we could bring back to White Waltham for the night. The uh, highest common factor in that circuit being the Sterling. He would send a Sterling pilot to Langley. He would ferry the Hurricane to Kemble. He would get his flight engineer to Kemble, where he'd pick him up, put him in the Wimpy, take him to Landau. With him, he would take the Sterling to Harden. He would then, if he was uh, grumbling madly, get him to a Tiger Moth and stuff your unfortunate flight engineer in the front seat and bring him back to White Waltham for the night, where he would get out grumbling, really rather proud of his day's work. And, of course, this was the difference between a good and a bad Prussia and a good and bad uh, ops officer. It was a human operation, like almost everything else that goes on, and the more it was run as a human set up, the better it worked. Well, now, you've done your, the ops officer and the pulsier, they've done their program, it's nine o'clock, you've worked out a uh, program for the Anson and Fairchild taxi aircraft to take everybody to their beginning places and pick them up in the evening from their ending places. You've written out delivery chits for each of the pilots. <coughs> you pin up the taxi program on the board, you call the pilots in, give them their chits, their taxi instructions, and off they go. First, he goes to the Met office. He now knows his uh, program for the day, so he gets the latest weather. He then goes to the Maps and Signals office, which is where we had the daily information as regards obstructions in the air, balloon barrages, and what have you. And um, so there he gets the hazards he's got to avoid during his day's work. Then if he's filling an aircraft type for the first time, he goes and draws out a copy of these handling notes for that aircraft. He then consults the technical instruction book, which is the stop press of the handling notes, where you put the latest information uh, regarding each type. Uh, which, as soon as it could be incorporated in the handling notes, of course, got withdrawn. Uh, and then he's... Um, I'll come back a bit later to this side of the operation. Then he gets dressed up, gets his parachute, called out to the 
waiting taxi aircraft, and off they all go. I think the thing to note about this in 1965 is the flexibility and the efficiency of the operation. There weren't any demarcation strikes. There weren't any arguments as to who should do what and when. There weren't any Class 5 pilots saying they were damned if they were going to ferry Class 1 aeroplanes. They might have looked sour, but they damn well went and did it. If we had only remembered this lesson, I think, in the last 20-odd years, I think we might still be a first-class power, and if we learn it again, I think we might be one again. Our work remained beyond the comprehension of a few of the more obstinate old-timers throughout the war. On one occasion, I was arrested on arriving with a Halifax at an RAF station in Yorkshire, having brought it through from the London area in visibility of a thousand yards all the way, on map reading alone, of course, and the station CO absolutely refused to believe that this could be a safe operation, particularly bearing in mind the various balloon barrages which one had to go around on the way. Uh, but I see Joan here. I must tell the Joan story. <laughs> I got some very, very angry letters about Joan. Hughes, by the way, that's all there. Um, from the first RAF Sterling unit. Uh, Sterling, for those of you who don't remember, it was a large and technically complicated and extremely unreliable four-engine bomber with a reputation going before it that gave rise to a good deal of apprehension. Well, its operational crew was 14. The squadron pilots were assembled to watch their first aircraft land and packs it up to the watchtower, the engine stopped, door at the back end opened, steps were lowered, after a bit of a wait, a very small young lady emerged, followed by a flight engineer carrying her parachute, and that was the lot. So Joan, who, five foot, Joan? Five foot? Three! Well, anyway, she didn't come up to the top of the towers of this device. <laughs> she, she got out and climbed the stairs of the watchtower and produced her delivery chit and got it signed and then walked out to the waiting taxi, Anson, and flew away. Well, I knew nothing about this. It was just a job, really. But a couple of days later, I got a furious letter as director of operations from the station CO saying that never again must a woman pilot be sent to that particular station. So I replied saying that uh, surely this demonstration must have satisfied the squadron of the docility of the Sterling. And uh, life went on as before. Well, some people have wondered why in ATA we did confine ourselves to maps. And the answer is we couldn't help ourselves because radio wasn't fitted at the factories. Uh, it was put on at the maintenance units on the allotment of each aircraft. And, of course, each user had his own separate frequency, uh, which was only installed when final delivery was made and was only useful when you got near your destination. So we had no option, and we got on pretty well without it. Well... I think I 
just want to repeat then the first, and I think probably the greatest lesson to be learnt from ATA, is only a special case of a much more general one. Everybody, from plumber to Suez Canal pilot, tends to persuade himself and everyone else that his job is much more difficult than it really is. Men hide themselves behind big words to create awe and wonderment in the beholders and the facade behind which they can blow up their own importance. This is an understandable and, f and human failing of rationalization, but it leads and will continue to lead the most dangerous consequences. The obvious one, of course, was the recently regretted Suez crisis. The canal pilots had persuaded themselves and everybody else that their job was vastly difficult, and the degree of skill required an equivalently high reward. At the height of the crisis, we played our trump card, we pulled out the foreign pilots, to everybody's chagrin, Perfectly ordinary chaps of all races stepped in and continued to steer ships down the middle of the canal, just as well as anybody else had done previously. Now, of course, these men have reintroduced the mystique, and I have no doubt that their salaries have climbed back to the levels of the people they took over from. I once proposed the introduction in the terminology of economics of a factor called the Suez Canal Factor, or SCF. This is the number by which a particular trade can increase its proper wages by the application of all methods of propaganda and ballyhoo which it can lay its hands on. In some fields, I'm sure that it can reach a figure as high as five. Well, I'll get on to our training methods carry out a job that had never been done before, we obviously had over the course of time to evolve our own specialized training methods. To begin with, since we were an offspring of BOA, our training was based on theirs, and their chief instructor, Mr. A. R. McMillan, was seconded for the purpose and created the foundation on which our schools were eventually formed. But central in everything we did in ATA was the insistence on the utmost possible simplification of method. Everything extraneous was ruthlessly cut out. The appalling clatter of unnecessary subjects, which anyone who wants to be a pilot today has to study and pass exams on, makes anyone who worked in ATA speechless with rage and frustration. The basis of training was the realization that all aircraft consisted, actually, of one of six different sorts of engines, three different makes of propeller, and one or two different hydraulic or electrical systems, all stuck together on an airframe. So all that was needed was an understanding of how these various units worked and how they were to be safely operated. We then categorized aircraft into six different classes, and each pilot, as he progressed, was given training on one or more typical aircraft within each class. Classes were class one, light single-engined aircraft, class two, other single-engine, class three, light twins, 
class 4 heavy twins, class 5 four-engined aircraft, and class 6 flying boats. Our elementary training school at Barton in the Clay employed Miles Magister aircraft. The advanced school at Whitewater used Harvard's and Masters for single-engine training, and Oxford's and Hudson's for twins. Four-engine training took place in collaboration with an RAF unit in Yorkshire. I don't think we were the first to invent a mnemonic cockpit drill, but quite certainly we were the first and last organization ever to produce one that had to be applicable to every type of aircraft in the sky. We started off uh, with one as follows, and then we had, a, uh, as it got more complex, we had a slightly more complicated one, as I got a slide of. The first one was HTMPFG, Hydraulics Throttle Mixture. I can't read me and write petrol, of course, for P, traps and gills. Then we went on to this one, which is a bit longer, so we'll have it. But this um, drill was applicable to everything we flew, uh, which, as I say, was 147 different types, and within those types, up to 20, 30, and 40 different marks. As I say, I don't think that's ever been done before, and I'm quite sure it will never be done again. Now, just as the uh, control room operation was the hub of our physical work, so the technical department was the center of the web which made its execution possible. We built up a constant two-way flow of information between the technical department, the school, the pilots, the accident investigation committee, and the maintenance and engineering branch. But central to all this, of course, was again the human relationship based on mutual confidence and respect between all these sections. In an atmosphere of suspicion and mistrust, or of empire building and self-interest, ATA would simply have fallen apart. This is, of course, simply the standard lesson that the main task of anyone in charge of a setup is to establish whether he's a chairman of an airline or a captain of a ferry pool or what have you, is to establish an atmosphere of friendship and loyalty and cooperation within the organization. Everything then follows on from that. Well, of course, in ATA and in wartime, this was comparatively easy to do. Although, in fairness, I, I must say that we had to do it more by leading than by driving, because as a civilian organization, we didn't have the arbitrary powers of King's regulations behind us. But because it is more difficult to achieve in more ordinary times, it doesn't make it less vital. I'm quite sure the efficient airline or air force or commercial organization is in fact the happy one. The technical department of ATA was extraordinarily small in size in comparison to what it did, 
under the highly competent direction of Bob Morgan, who I see sitting in the middle there, who is now Chief Project and Development Engineer of BEA. The central staff never exceeded ten people, with an allied section producing technical publications. It included two technical pilots, who also did a lot of actual ferrying to keep them in touch with real life. And, and also the staff included a flight engineer, a chap called Freddie Laker, who since then has made good use of the ATA grinding we gave him. When a new type of aircraft was ready for ferrying, a party would set off from the technical department to survey and fly it and produce a booklet of handling notes. In the case of British aircraft, this of course would be done by a visit to the factory concerned. In the case of American aircraft, a visit to the transatlantic reception unit. I've got copies of these notes here, and if anybody would like to have a look at them afterwards, you can. Uh, but the rigid rule in them was simplification again, and over the years we produced an intensely practical series of handling notes and ferry pilot's notes. These are formed, I think, a model for almost all subsequent technical literature of this kind. And in my view, this is the second great con permanent contribution of ATA to the subsequent history of aviation. They were so far ahead of their day that they were constantly pinched by non-ATA pilots hungry for information provided in an easily digestible form. This we had eventually to frown on because they were specially edited for pilots with ATA training and of course could lead others into error, particularly as they were rigidly confined to the information needed by a ferry pilot and excluded everything else. Then we had a separate booklet of handling notes for each type of aircraft with sub oh, hang on, I just talked about pilot's notes. Let me at least show you. This was the lot. It's got one card in it giving the basic data for all the 147 different types and the 20 and 30 marks with each type which we had to fly. Then we produced a separate booklet of handling notes for each type with sub-chapters relating to each mark within each type. For instance, on the spit, that went up to mark 45, and the mosquitoes to mark 36, although not all of these reached as far as us. Just had a slide made of the card for the mosquito, which you see includes Mark 36. This gives any pilot who already knows the type, not a pilot who's ferrying it for the first time, the basic figures he needs to remind him uh, what he has to do to ferry the thing. Well, anybody who wants to look more at those afterwards in a spirit of uh, sad remembrance, I've got a set of them here. I must say, everybody adored the mosquito except me. I had a moment when I mislanded one at Cosford and I thought I'd 
had it looked at, never see anything wrong. I had to go on to write Walton. I was terribly grand in those days. I was just taking a day off. Next day it was fed on by an unfortunate lady to Lasham, of all places. And she got there and landed the undercarriage collapsed and the station CO rang me up in fury about winning pilots. I looked at the number of the thing. I had to confess it was the ship which I had mishandled the day before. And I think he was extremely angry that he couldn't blame the unfortunate girl. Such is life. Well, I'm not a girl, thank God. Well, then we produced uh, a book of uh, handling notes for each type, which was, of course, much more uh, detailed than that. And this is what you took with you the first uh, one or two times in which you had to fly a machine you'd never seen before. Here's one of them covering the Wellington, all types. This gave you in rational order all the information you wanted regarding the general details of the aircraft, where the controls were, the checks, the starting procedures, taxiing and takeoff, flying characteristics, landing and stopping the engines. Stopping the engines, incidentally, is darn sight more difficult than you know until you know how to do it. It used to be a thing called hydraulicking. I suppose it's gone out of fashion now with jets. Well, to get into a strange machine and study these notes, and then half an hour later to carry out a ferry flight, was one of the most satisfying things I've ever done, and one which at the very end remained an alarming and incomprehensible feat to any non-ATA passenger one might have on board. I remember at Prestwick collecting a Boston one day, and some American general was fired into the back for me to take down south. He just arrived from America, and he got in the back, and I sat him down and went from, I'd never seen one of these things before, opened my ferry pilot's note and started studying them. It was a fairly concentrated affair. And about ten minutes later, I had some heavy breathing over my left shoulder, and the chap was peering at what I was doing. And finally, uh, he said rather nervously, haven't you ever flown one of these things before? And I said, no, shut up. And he went back and breathed heavily on his parachute. And of course, we started it up and taxied it out and took off and got to White Waltham, by which time he was sufficiently confident to be up in front with me. And when I had dropped the chapter on how to land, he rushed back and sat back on his parachute. <laughs> Quite a panic till we got down. <laughs> the, uh, these books, I think, have formed the model for all the subsequent literature of the sort. And as I say, when we fed a type for the first few times, we took this thing, and then uh, when we got the basic layout in our heads, we had our card in this thing. We had to issue very strict instructions eventually to our pilots never to ask for or accept information from anyone at all, or even people like test pilots but to abide very strictly by their ferry pilot's notes. And it was quite astonishing how much misinformation one could get, even from the most impeccable sources. Of course, in addition to these pilot's notes, the same technical job had to be carried out for the maintenance staff, 
who find themselves having to cope with aircraft in transit of every type under the sun. So here, Bob got in touch with the MAP and enlisted the support of a most excellent gentleman called Mr. Grinstead, who produced, with our assistance, a comprehensive series of ground handling notes, which initially were entitled Prepared for the Use of ATA, but rapidly, of course, it was found that every maintenance unit and RAF station in the world was faced with exactly our problems, some strange type plonking down on them at night, and they wanted to know how to get it started again in the morning. So that these uh, were eventually given a worldwide circulation. Here's a manual of them. They're quite small. Well, now, even 20 years later, Bob Morgan still, apparently, he tells me, gets requests from all over the world for photostat copies of our pilot's notes and ground handling notes coming from people who are still operating these wartime aircraft. Well, that's nearly the end, except, I think, for the, probably, once again, the biggest thing we did. This was in the evolution of, our, of methods of accident investigation. And indeed, I see the gentleman who helped us do just that in the body of the hall here. Because uh, I think, yeah, we probably did make our greatest contribution to subsequent aviation history. Because I don't think it's too much to say that our methods of, on our methods have been based all subsequent accident procedures used throughout the world. The entire ATA investigation staff moved on after the war to BEA, and from there they started the process of worldwide dissemination. I published a paper on this subject in the June 46 issue of the Raleigh Aeronautical Society, so I won't repeat it here, but will confine myself to repeating the two main premises. The first is that the major purpose of accident investigation is the prevention of further accidents or a reduction in the accident rate. It is not to find who is to blame. It is not to find out how much money you owe the passengers that you've bumped off. It is to stop other people being killed the same way next time. There's nothing you can do after an accident is going to minimize the loss that's been caused, but you can nearly always take steps which will make it less likely that further people will be killed the same way tomorrow. Well, this leads to the first law of accident investigation, which is that the amount of damage done in an accident has no bearing at all on the importance of that accident from the prevention of further accidents point of view. You can have a giant airliner crashing with loss of all lives on board and there's nothing left and you can get no information out of it to stop it happening tomorrow. You can have a pilot mishandling his petrol cocks losing his engines, by the grace of God getting down in one piece, there is no damage at all. 
But you've got the chapel to tell you what happened, you've got the machine there, you might find out that the clock's a bad place, so it's easy to miss them, and you might get them moved, and you might save somebody's life tomorrow. Now those, I think, are the two main rules, or a number of other ones, and I won't go through my old paper again. But one result from that is that you've got to get a clear and very special definition of the word accident, it no longer means what the general public thinks it means. And the second conclusion is psychology, because pilots, nobody wants to have an accident. And in order to find out what caused it, you've got to get the pilot on your side. You mustn't go up and say, you silly clock, what did you do? You mustn't say, if I can possibly blame you, I'm damn well going to. You've got to treat him with sympathy, you've got to persuade him not to try to cover up what happened because it's his duty to try and save somebody's life tomorrow. And he's in a special position where he might be able to do just that. So as soon as you can get them on your side, as soon as you can get them into their heads, what you're trying to do is not to punish anybody but to prevent anybody going through their miserable experience again, you are then three-quarters of the way on to reducing the rate of further accidents. Well, all this, I suppose, in 65, sounds pretty trite, although I'm bound to say I was at a meeting on accidents not long ago, but a very high-up chap suggested that the way to tackle it to begin with was only to concentrate on the fatalities. But to those of you who are a little more intelligent than that, uh, what I've been saying is now sort of in your blood, I hope. And a, a series of enlightened official bodies engaged in this work in this country have been applying these ideas for many, work, many years, but they do look back to the pioneer work of ATA, and perhaps it was only possible to do this work in a war when all the outside pressures gave way to stern operational necessity. There was nobody saying my trade union wouldn't like it. There was nobody saying I'm not going to be blamed because I might lose my job. We all wanted to get on with the thing, and we wanted to reduce accidents. So all this, of course, leads back to the very old lesson but essential to any potentially hazardous undertaking is discipline, and of all disciplines, self-discipline is far and away the best. In flying, you're most of the time out of sight of policemen anyway, and if you don't discipline yourself, nobody's going to do it for you. Well, of course, in ATA we were very lucky in this respect. In Pop de Langer we had a good leader, and the people who hived on him were so infused with enthusiasm for the work we did that self-discipline was naturally to us, and any of us would rather have died than fail to match up to the standards that we set. I wish I could feel that the spirit of ATA could be the spirit of mankind today. Well, now, if everybody would like to wake up, we've got a film. Uh, wait a minute, before we have the film, I've forgotten the program. 
You've got five minutes for anybody who'd like to ask questions. Wake up all. Anyone like to ask questions now? Now is your opportunity. Yes, I can. <coughs> Some of these valuable Look after them for you, or for us and for the generations to come. You've told us tonight of many things which you originated, especially the simplicity in your documents, and the help you had from the late Mr. Grinstead, a man who many, many of us admired very much for his clarity of thought and writing, and if you could let us have these, uh, any of these pamphlets you can spare to put in the records uh, so they can be kept here, it would be very much welcome. By a remark you made very early in your lecture about Blackburn Bother, um, never yet have I heard anyone who's been associated with this aeroplane make a kind remark about it. <laughs> and you did the very same thing, so there must be something in it. Could you tell us what... Um, what it was that horrified everyone about the <clears throat> Well, it had absolutely no single-engine performance of any kind. Its handling was unbelievable. It handled rather like a billiard, constipated billiard table. Um, was it the one that moaned and groaned and you thought all was lost, but you eventually discovered that only when it stopped moaning were you in danger? Is that right, Bob? It was one, yes. It had ghastly hydraulic um, stomachic noises, which meant that all was well when you got used to the idea. And when, well, we know, Jolly Nelly was dead. It's the nearest I've been to being dead for quite a while. Um, I struggled the thing over the trees and got it to White Walton, and for seven days and nights people tried to find out what the hell it had done, and nobody ever found anything wrong with it at all. So I gave it to somebody else to ferry it away. It was a bastard, and we were flying it empty. We didn't hear, even have any rude devices on it, and it was still a bee. What it must have been like for the wretched chaps with torpedoes on, I just don't like the thing. Sorry? The other mile. The other mile was rather splendid, but of course it never did anything, did it? No. 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 Well, the Whitley didn't do very well, did it, when it uh, lost an engine? Of course, the, uh, the um, Barracuda didn't do very well even when it had an engine. <laughs> the chairman, uh, the chairman would now like to ask you a question, if I may. Did you find that pilots, sometimes ferry pilots in particular, gave an aircraft they had to ferry a bad name, and promptly all the other pilots of fluid followed his, his lead? Wasn't that likely to happen? I mean, that's the sort of thing that happened with the Bristol fighter in the First War, and yet the Bristol fighter ultimately was an excellent aircraft for its day. I don't recall this happening. I don't think so. We came to each aircraft with a fairly fresh mind. Um, as long as you kept people moving around, we had one or two ferry pools that were specializing in, um, say, Spitfires or something of that sort. And there, of course, pilots didn't have their independence of mind, as it were. In the ordinary ferry pool where you ferried four types today and two different ones tomorrow and three again. Um, no, I don't remember. There was an American device that used to always ground loop. What the hell was that called? Did anybody remember it? The wasn't even quite the government. Oh, the Aero Cobra was heaven, wasn't it? You, you couldn't get in it unless you were 
Big enough for Joan Hughes. If I was third, I had. Right. It was American, all right. And we ground looped about 20 30 of them in a quick, quick run. But by and large, we liked aeroplanes. We, we, we were being paid to do what we liked. We approached them with the highest hopes, and we expected them to be nice, and we expected to enjoy them. And they had to be jolly bad before we stopped liking them. Um, who, who else would like to speak? Well, one question, please. To divide into both fact and crystal gazing, can you tell me, please, if the short-lived Civil Air Guard scheme produced any useful recruits for ATA? And could you see any similar scheme producing useful recruits in a future national emergency? Hands up any ex-Civil Air Guarders here. Two! And both jolly good ones. Was that all you ever done before you came to us? And you, Mr. Head? Yes, but um, I had done a thousand hours as an instructor on. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. <laughs> God didn't do much good. And as regards the future war, of course, there can't be an ATA again. There can't be a thousand bomber raids. There'll be one bomber raid, and after that, you need spades. You know, we, we've had our fun. Nobody else is ever going to have it again, I'm sure of that. But as regards um, this business of training and flying modern pipes, I'm perfectly certain you could quarter the time that's taken to do it now and produce much better pilots if you went at the thing without all the ballyhoo that now surrounds it. In the usual manner, how much you've thoroughly enjoyed his lecture and uh, the film. Thank you.